Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Hamid Elmyar. I am the host of the podcast with Dr. E. At this podcast, I sit with the world's experts in health, education, and community development to talk about current health challenges and ask them to share their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts with all nations across the world, especially the developing countries, so that we learn from experts across the globe. I have an amazing guest today who is a public health expert and a Fulbright scholar. It's a pleasure to introduce Felix Hall. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. That's a great opportunity to participate in this. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Felix is a PhD candidate in medical informatics at the University of Munich in Germany. After his undergraduate training in medical informatics in Germany, Felix got a master's in global health sciences from the University of California, San Francisco as a Fulbright scholar. Prior to starting his PhD, Felix worked at UCSF as a health informatics specialist and developed surveillance IT systems for infectious diseases with regular field work in Southern Africa. Felix is currently conducting research on mHealth applications. He is also trained as an EMT, um, emergency medical technician with the German Red Cross and works as volunteer EMT in the emergency medical services and is a delegate for the Red Cross International Disaster Response. Welcome again, Felix. Thank you. So we're going to start today's conversation with Felix. Um, to talk about the current situation, coronavirus in uh, Germany. And starting the very first question, um, Felix, many people think Germany has a stable healthcare system. What do you think? Yeah, I would very much agree with that statement. There's, a, there's always a couple of different metrics and rankings of how to determine which country has the strongest healthcare system. Sometimes France comes out first, sometimes the Netherlands, sometimes Germany, but I think overall we're definitely up there. So we do have a very strong and stable healthcare system. And what I mean with strong and stable is not just that it might deliver the best care possible, which for example, the United States has probably the healthcare system that would be able to deliver by far the best care, but it also is affordable and accessible to everyone in Germany. So what that means is that for a long period of time, all Germans had the right to health insurance and now they actually have the duty to have health insurance. So what that means is you have to have health insurance. For most people that comes with their job, so they're automatically enrolled in the social health insurance scheme. But there is a, a small portion, about 10% of Germans are in a public health insurance scheme, but they have the duty to actually be enrolled in one of the two. So that basically means that like all German citizens have access to healthcare, which is important for this crisis because they're, yep. In other places where they might have to pay for it out of pocket, there's obviously a huge barrier to seek both testing and care if you feel sick or if you suspect to have coronavirus. Um, mm -hmm. So in Germany, there's no co-payments for either testing or treatment. So I think that's a huge important factor for people to just seek care when they're sick or to get tested when they think they might have contained the virus. Um, Additionally, we do have a very high number of ICU beds per capita in comparison to basically all the other European countries around us, especially right, France right. and Italy who had that high number of cases. We do have a huge number of ICU beds and they were actually able to increase that number quite significantly over the last weeks and months 
even though we actually didn't end up needing them. But if we had had a bigger outbreak, we also hopefully would have been able to cope with it a little better. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, the, and the other big thing in terms of testing it that we have a very decentralized lab infrastructure. So mm -hmm. other countries might have like centralized large labs. Um, in Germany, there's both a lot of hospitals have their own small lab and yeah. there's this decentralized network of small private labs all over the country. So that just means that Germany had a very, very large lab capacity from the beginning of that um, pandemic. And I think that's also kind of like what one of the main factors that contributed to Germany controlling COVID that fast is that we had a, probably the highest rate of testing after I think Korea. Right. Um, that's important. And also the first, the, one of the first reference tests by the WHO was actually developed in Berlin at the Shelley yeah. case. I think these are factors contributing to it. Um, and then I guess on the downside is that a lot of smaller hospitals and rural areas have closed in recent years. So even though we had like a, a high number of beds in addition to the ICU beds that has reduced, has been reduced quite a bit in the last years, but they're actually able to reopen a couple of those hospitals who just closed in a recent, within the last year or two. So they were also able to just increase the bed capacity quite quickly. And then I guess the last thing is because we, at least in certain parts, still have a lot, a very large number of uh, hospitals, they're mm -hmm. actually able to kind of differentiate between having COVID specific hospitals. So in mm -hmm. a county, if there's a couple of hospitals, they decided that one hospital would be the one to take care of COVID patients, while at least one other hospital could be used for non-COVID patients. So that was a way to very greatly separate the two and kind of like prevent contamination. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for the very um, comprehensive um, uh, discussion and talking about the um, the health system in Germany. And you pointed to uh, a very key point there. You said that the health uh, uh, is not only uh, right, but you stepped it up a little bit more and saying that it is a duty um, for for the government to provide health care for people, which is amazing. Uh, and so just following up with the, um, this pretty much um, along the same line, um, the other question that a lot of people um, are actually asking, um, Germany's been quite successful in containing coronavirus as opposed to other European countries um, with pretty much similar health systems. Um, uh, what measures actually did Germany take in order to control coronavirus? You pointed to a few, but um, you, would you like to give us a little more detail? Definitely, yeah. I'm probably just going to reiterate a little bit and then just go into more detail. And I think the most important one is that Germany started early on testing at a very, very high rate. So if, if you look at the numbers of tests that were conducted, that's probably the thing that kind of like set us apart from many other countries. Mm -hmm. um, so initially they, they had reference tests that the large university hospitals very early on, but then tried to expand it very quickly. So um, a lot of the like the local health departments were able to send people to a testing sites. So they initially started to set up small testing sites within hospitals, but then actually expanded and set up separate like drive-in testing sites at like a convention site or something like that, where they would just staff it 20, like at least eight hours a day with a physician and like a nurse and maybe a paramedic or a Red Cross volunteer in most cases actually. So mm -hmm. people would call the health department and say, well, I probably, I might have Corona. I had contact with a suspected case. They would then get an appointment, a time slot where they would literally just drive to that testing station, wouldn't even leave the car. Someone would just do the nasal swab and then 
they would get like drive throughs sorry like drive throughs through the drive throughs yeah, in the yeah, park would, that's what they intended it so the contamination would be minimalized as much as possible yeah and then initially it, it would take about four days to get the results but then they boosted testing capacity quite a bit and it you would get the result within a day often um, and then like small scale software companies started to develop apps that instead of the health department having to call you, you might just get a notification on your phone saying, hey, your result is ready. Um, you're positive, so you have to stay in quarantine or thank God you're negative and you can kind of go on with your life. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess what we did from the, the recent reports a little later than we should have, but we're still quite successful was just to introduce shelter in place and uh, social distancing um measures so they were they were introduced in a very direct way so people were prohibited initially it was like that not more than two people were allowed to be in the same place outside right um and so not like in other countries like in greece where you would have to seek approval from you from the government or the local health authority to leave your house people were still allowed to leave the house mm -hmm. um, but a lot of activities were prohibited so like all the health clubs were closed all the restaurants all the bars um, the restaurants, for example, were still able to offer takeout, but with certain um, distance measures around it, but people were still uh, allowed to exercise at every time of the day. So running and cycling, for example, mm -hmm. um, and then they slowly started to kind of wean off those, those mechanisms, but only after the number of cases dropped significantly. Um, but for example, now there's reports that we should have actually introduced those measures a little earlier because the first wave of infections actually happened during the carnival in germany so yeah. the contract tracing revealed that it was like one carnival event where there were like a, like 200 people in the room and quite a few of them actually got sick so if we had started earlier we might have even had a lower number of cases um and aside i guess from the testing and the, the social distancing the german healthcare system was boosted quite a bit so as i said earlier they tried to reactivate decommissioned hospitals by just trying to restaff them. But they also set up a lot of temporary hospitals. So for example, Berlin, they converted the large portion, proportion of the convention center into mm -hmm. a temporary hospital. And they did that all over the country, basically trying to like identify structures that are suitable to be built into a makeshift hospital. And actually we, I don't think we had to use any of them, but they are there in case there's a re-emergence of the disease. Um, and the other thing they did was trying to in, increase ventilator capacities quite a bit. So within existing hospitals, they, a lot of the hospitals were able to double their ICU bed capacity by uh, purchasing ventilators on the market, by getting them from the, the military that had them in stock um, and using right. disaster response units ventilators. So a lot of the hospitals have a lot of over ICU capacity that we didn't have to utilize, but looking at the numbers of people on ventilators, both in France and in Italy, that was kind of what was necessary to, to yeah. for a resurgence of cases. And then I think another country that's really interesting to mention in this context is actually Greece. I don't know if it made it to the news outside of Europe, but Greece kind of knew that their healthcare system wasn't as strong as, for example, the German healthcare system, because they were in an economic crisis for many years and had to cut government spending. Yeah, so knowing yeah. that the healthcare system wouldn't be able to cope with such an influx of cases, they actually introduced much stronger quarantine measures. So people were not allowed to leave the house without prior approval from the government. So there was a texting service in place where you would send a text message to your health authority saying, I need to go out grocery shopping. And then you would get approval with a time slot that allowed you to leave the country. And they actually had a 
much lower number of cases because of those strong measures. So I think that's something where even Germany could have learned from other countries. But mm -hmm. I guess we just didn't have to be that rigorous because at least for the current number of cases, we were able to deal with them. Perfect, great. Um, so you mentioned about the um, Germany boosted the healthcare system. Um, I think it is um, for some countries like Germany, um, it, it was a little helpful because, you know, to learn from other other um, countries as it started in China and then, you know, spread uh, in Europe and some other countries across the world. Unfortunately, it's um, it's almost all over the world now. But um, so the, the advantage of that, um, you know, people can learn from the countries that they have been through the same process. And that's why we are trying to talk to each other from across the world to, to learn from the experiences. And the main purpose for this uh, podcast is the same thing, to bring people um, from across the world on, you know, around the same table and virtually now because of the coronavirus. And we are talking about this to learn from our, um, from each other's experiences. Um, so that is, that is, um, do you think that that will help? This is just to, to follow up with the, um, the question that I had is, uh, you said that the boost, the Germany, um, actually Germany boosted the health system. So do you think that that also helped learning from other experiences like in Europe and in Italy, I guess? Yeah, very much so. Um, so for example, the German health, the, Germ the Federal Ministry of Health sent teams both mm -hmm. to Italy and France to kind of assess the situation. So there was a very devastating report from like the, the, the border region of France to Germany where they they saw that people over 80 just wouldn't be put on a ventilator because they knew they were reaching. Yeah, which was sad, yeah. That was, that was like one of the main takeaways, knowing that if there was that high number of cases, we would need a much, much, much larger capacity for ventilators. And knowing how long people would stay on a vent, mm. they just did the math and figured out that by far we didn't have enough capacity. So they both tried to limit the number of cases by introducing those very strict quarantine measures and social distancing measures, but also try to boost the healthcare system capacity. And it's not just setting up beds and ventilators, it also meant figuring out how to staff those additional beds. Exactly, that's so a very important to like part, get yeah. Nurses and physicians that are not in the healthcare sector anymore to come back to both like recently retired people or people in academia or in research or just someone who switched careers. So they tried to both get those people back. Um, they act kind of like activated the disaster response units, kind of like mm -hmm. tried to see what staff capacities are in volunteer structures and instructed like simple first aiders or EMTs um, in means to basically provides basic care to patients in case they were needed to staff both those additional beds and for example, to staff those uh, hospitals. And I guess the last thing is that we, we initially, we had a lot of testing, but we also realized that we wouldn't have enough testing capacities to reach the number of tests needed to kind of get a good understanding of the number of cases. So to try mm -hmm. to not have too many, many undetected infections. So that's the last thing, like the, the last pillar and the measures we took was to massively increase lab capacities, which I think is still one of the success factors, what contributed yeah. to us having that low number of infections. I, I totally agree with you in terms of, you know, the, uh, maximizing the number of, of uh, testings and I think that uh, the more of the testing you do the more you know who um, you know how many people are infected so that you can isolate them and uh, you know contact tracing and stuff and um, the US has been successful too in terms of increasing the number now 
um, in the number of testings as well as you know during the the um, the pandemic um, you know takeouts like as you just mentioned uh, for restaurants and places like that still was open which is really helpful for people because you know we cannot stop um, totally you know the the day-to-day -day life and we um, we need certain things like food and stuff to for survival um, so it's pretty much similar to the um, you know most part of the of the um, the world um, and I think it's it's a some good news coming from Germany I've been following the news I've been reading about um, since you know talking about the podcast and inviting people from across the world I'm trying to read and um, watch the news and everything about different countries um, there are some good news coming from Germany that um, I want to pose this question to you that now that the businesses are being reopened in Germany which businesses are already open and um, what does the time frame look like for larger social events such as the soccer to get back to normal yeah totally um, so as you've mentioned that we we have been quite successful with implementing those measures but like pretty much from the start they put a very big strain on both the economy and also personal life personal mm -hmm. lives of people so initially like like all the manufacturing most of that was just shut off right away so like the, all the big car companies kind of stopped production and now slowly slowly ramping up production but also demand has obviously dropped quite a bit but the things that were shut down completely was all the sporting events all the gyms restaurants at least all the sit-in places and all the beer gardens were closed um, all the bars and now people now that people see that there are less cases obviously uh, the pressure on the government increased to re to figure out a plan how to reopen those things. Um, so, for example, grocery stores always stayed open, but mm -hmm. for example, department stores were closed and clothing stores, and then obviously those owners tried to push the government to reopen. Um, so we're in a phase where the, the number of new infections is still pretty low, but we do see a small surge because of those reopenings. Mm -hmm. um, so initially they said that all the shops with like less than 800 square meters would be allowed to reopen, but with strict distancing measures. So they, they limited the number of people that were allowed in a shop. People had to wear a fast face mask and like a lot of consultancy services were reduced. Um, and starting last week, for example, restaurants opened up again in most uh, states. So That's Germany exciting, varies yeah. a little bit between states because we do have a state a federal government and a state, state governments and these kind of measures are within the power of states but they all have kind of like the similar lines so last week restaurants opened up for example what's important for Bavaria is that the beer gardens opened up again so that's a big part of German culture in spring and summer is to sit in a beer garden with friends and have a cold beverage outside um, so these places have opened up again but with obviously a lot less numbers of of guests in those places so there's only uh, you're only allowed to be there with one other household so if mm -hmm. I go there with my partner we can only meet up with one other household so for example another couple or one friend so we can't meet up with a lot of different friends and between the tables there's always one and a half meter distance and for example if I go to the bathroom I have to put on a face mask mm -hmm. the waiters will wear a face mask in certain places right. also, um, wear gloves and what's most important I think is that when you, when you sit down at a table, you have to give them your contact details. 
So mm. they have a sheet of paper with your contact details on it, then they will take note of the table you were seated at and also the date and time you were there. So if someone tests positive and notifies the restaurant that they are Corona positive and they were happen to be sitting right next to me, the, hospital, the restaurant will then call me and say, well, mm. you might've had contact with someone mm. and you have to isolate yourself for two weeks. Um, mm -hmm. So that happened last week, but we actually unfortunately already saw the first kind of like small outbreaks because of it. So in one restaurant, about 10 people got infected. So it is a slippery slope when you have to decide between kind of like reopening up life versus just trying to prevent the spread of the pandemic. Uh, for example, also places of worship have opened up again. So in mm -hmm. churches and mosques, they have strict rules. It also means that people have to keep a distance of a meter and a half between each other and that you aren't allowed to have like contact. But we can't really ensure that it's always obeyed because, for example, in, in Frankfurt in a church, there was an outbreak when our about 100 people who attended one prayer session got infected. Mm -hmm. So it is a very, very delicate and fine line to find that balance. And for example, next week, uh, hotels are going to open up again for mm -hmm. private travels. So some hotels always stayed open for like a mechanic who would be on a business trip, long, a long-term deployment somewhere. But starting yeah. next week, uh, both campgrounds and uh, hotels will open up again. So that's going to be quite interesting to see how they will cope with those quarantine or those social distancing measures and how that is going to affect um, the number of new cases. Um, and schools have slowly opened up already. So they started with those who are supposed to graduate this year. So those mm -hmm. tend to be the older high school students, for example, who at least hopefully fully understand the magnitude of this pandemic. So they also, again, have those quarantine measures where people have to keep a meter and a half distance, where they would have to wear a face mask if they're in, pub, in, a, like in the, the hallway, for example. And now they're debating how to reopen up like for all classes, but also mm -hmm. how to open up kindergartens and daycare centers, which will be a lot more challenging, obviously, because you can't tell a two-year-old that he's not allowed to play with his friend. Um, so that's going to be interesting. And then I guess the most interesting new development is actually that the German soccer league has yeah. started. There's yeah, yeah, I heard um, they were they were putting like uh, their jerseys or, or portraits in the stadium. <laughs> exactly. So oh. basically the stadiums are closed for the public. It's literally just 22 players on the field and like all the support staff around mm -hmm. it. But the players are have to be in quarantine before a game for a week. Mm -hmm. um, just to try to make sure they are not infected and they do a lot of testing. So yeah. it kind of raises an ethical question of if it's okay to spend that much testing capacity on soccer players rather than medical staff, for example. Mm -hmm. But they always argue they have the money to pay for it. So I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, as you, as you said, they try to put jerseys over the seats because the state stadiums are pretty much empty. So you can watch it on TV, but yeah. it's just a totally different feeling. Um, mm -hmm. And they started with the, the first German soccer league and they also have started the second league. And I just heard on the radio before, before we talked that the third German league is also going to start up. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, that basically means that it's like the first major European like, yeah. sports league to restart. But for now, it's literally just soccer because a lot of other sporting events that are only funded by the people actually paying for a ticket to go there, it doesn't make any sense for them to start. But at least soccer mm -hmm. has started. And I think it's, it kind of helps a lot of people to go back to like a kind of regular life because for a lot of Germans it's either going to the stadium which is unfortunately not possible but for others it's just to watch the games on TV with some friends and if you obey those social distancing rules you can still do that so I think that's a 
an important step in the right direction, but we will have to see how that's going to play out in the long run. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for, uh, for this informative um, discussion. And um, you pretty much answered part of the, um, the challenging, the, my follow-up question that I was trying to ask about the, um, the challenges um, that um, Germany would see, what would be the biggest challenges. And I think you pointed to a, uh, an interesting part there um, in reopening the restaurants and people sitting there and, um, you know, they have to write down their, their contacts, their names and, you know, kind of like identification just in case if something, you know, if there is a positive case, then they can do the contact tracing. That's pretty much the reason for that, as I think. Um, that is an interesting point. And there are like different measures across the world uh, people are taking. I, I've seen pictures um, on the news from different countries that they have, um, they have like those, um, some kind of like uh, a wall between the two um, tables so that people um, can sit you know, on separate from each other. Um, there are, there are different, different ways. Some people, um, do you think it is like just a follow up question on this, um, specific point that, um, it is really, it is, you know, people are not used to this writing their names and contact and when going to a restaurant, that is a challenge. What do you think like people's reaction to that thing and how big of a challenge would that be and how long would it take for Germany to do so? Definitely, yeah. Um, so for me, when I first went to a restaurant, it was a weird feeling, but it took me like, oh yeah, it's for contract tracing. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then you listen to the waiter who has to explain it to every person who comes to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, I think people are kind of okay with it, especially because right now it's all paper-based. So you literally just yeah. write it on a sheet of paper and the restaurant will just throw it away. So it's not all going to one big database where they can just build a map of the places that I went to. So mm -hmm. I think if they did a kind of a pretty good job of communicating to people why it is necessary to do so. Um, but overall, we have started to see like, quite a bit of protests happening in towns and cities where mm -hmm. people protest against the strict social distancing measures because the number of cases is so low. So they don't really think about it any, as, as much anymore that people are actually dying of it. So it's like, mm -hmm. if, you, if you see the pictures from France and Italy, then yeah. you know that it's a serious, it's a serious mm -hmm. issue. But now if you kind of like live in your bubble in your little town and there's no COVID cases or maybe only a small number and that is going down quite rapidly, but you're not allowed to go to the bar, you're not allowed to practice your daily life, people start to get frustrated with it. And mm -hmm. the unfortunate thing is that actually a lot of the right wing and like kind of like really bad people started to pick up on that, that trend and have now written that train and try to influence people. Um, but the vast majority of Germans is still like very much behind it because they there was a decent amount of like information campaigns by like very reputable sources yeah. um, that have done a good job. But for example, like the, the German CDC equivalent, uh, the RKI, um, they had to obviously, but just as part of a, a pandemic situation like that, had to correct their numbers and even sometimes correct their their measures a little bit. So people got frustrated and saying, well, if they don't even know what they're doing, like how is this supposed to be the correct numbers? But I think that's just because it's such a dynamic situation. We have to change and adapt. Um, but I think overall the kind of like the mood in the general public is still very positive 
and people do see the necessity, but mm -hmm. it is putting a strain on the economy quite a bit. So yeah. a lot of people have, are only working 50% right now. So there is a measure in Germany in place that if a, a company does not have enough work to do, they can send their, um, their employees home for, for example, 50% of their time and the government will actually be pay will pay for part of the salary mm -hmm. um, so that measure that mechanism has worked quite well and it has been taken up by a lot of companies yeah. um, the people still do get like in most cases they will get 80 percent of the salary even though they might only work two days a week um, but in the long term that's still less money than 100 percent pay and you sit at home and obviously like a lot of self-employed people or artists or bar owners didn't have any income so there was like a like a a lump sum payment that you could apply right. for so they would get like 1500 euros as a lump sum from the government but it only covers a fraction of your cost so people do get frustrated and that might probably be the most problematic thing in the long run so because the goal is to keep the number of cases very low people just don't see the problem anymore so that might be the problem that we might see a reoccurrence, but because also people might stop to fully comply with all the social distancing, might just meet up with friends in the case the the virus might just spread quicker again. Mm -hmm. But we'll see. That's just we'll just have to wait and see and try to obey the rules. Thank you again. It's it's really important to to know like what other countries are doing um, in terms of you know we're trying to learn from each other. Um, obviously, the socioeconomic impacts and, and compli uh, implications of the coronavirus has been huge um, in the Western countries as well as in, in underserved communities and, and countries across the world. Um, I wouldn't like, you know, I, I, I would say that everyone, uh, I, I mean, people get frustrated in, in, in getting back to work, to back to normal. That I wouldn't blame people for that either, but I think, uh, meanwhile, it is it is a little tough um, that all the you know the the efforts that the people and the countries put together to contain the coronavirus, and you are flattening the curve, um, but it is you know it is tough. It is not easy. You know, it would be very frustrating if it goes back to square one because of you know people not taking it serious. Um, so it's a very delicate part there. Like people have to understand all the implications of such things. Um, you, um, I think that you know countries like um, the rest of the European and, and 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 the U.S. can learn also from the from the rest of the world, especially when in the process of reopening. Um, that partly, you know the. Uh, reopening process is being started in parts of the US as well. However, in the East Coast, it's still um, the lockdown, but it's just the uh, the parks that are opened and people can go there and walk, but they have to have the mask and they have to uh, keep the social distancing. Um, as you mentioned about the uh, worship places, worship places also here in the US, um, the government announced that they, uh, they can open, but um, they have to keep the social distancing. Um, that um, there is there's a lot actually to learn from each other um, in in this time, and it, this leads me to the final question that I um, always ask from um, the speakers and the guests uh, to talk about. Um, 
their experiences and how um, I'm going to connect this to uh, Afghanistan. How do you think, um, you know, the, because this is a, a really um, difficult question maybe because of the health settings is different in um, developing world than, than the uh, countries like Germany. But how can Afghanistan learn from countries, um, Germany's experience and model of COVID-19 pandemic as two countries are of different health settings? Yeah, totally. That's, that's, that is obviously the main, the main question that everyone is trying to figure out. How can we learn from those countries that are very successful? Because in Germany, for example, we always looked at Sweden, who would always propagand itself as a country who didn't have a lot of social distance measures in place that they still had a very low number of cases, but that's because, for example, their population structure is very different. Um, so I think if we look at what Germany did and what Afghanistan can learn from it, uh, I think the first thing is that the ca testing capacity has to be as large as possible in any measure. And mm -hmm. it both means that there is enough machines and staff to actually perform the tests, but also the access to a test should be free ideally because in germany as i said there's no copay to get tested mm -hmm. and it is expensive so even if if a, if a government will or a country will just provide testing for free i think that's money well spent to say well everyone who is potentially infected because they either have the symptoms that correspond with it or they had contact with someone who is positive testing them and making sure to know that, to figure out their status that is very important um i think it it's also in addition to the testing to make to do the contact tracing is very important that right. can be done mostly with manpower you so you don't need a huge sum of money you just need to have a lot of staff actually following up on those who tested positive trying to figure out where they got infected and then making sure to keep con to keep track of who they had contact with and either tell those people to just self-quarantine which is basically free or mm -hmm. to get the, to test those people as well so i think these that might be the main thing that you could learn from Germany. Um, the other thing is obviously to enforce the social distancing. I think right. that is very difficult depending on the cultural setting. I know, for example, at the end of Ramadan in Germany, Muslims were struggling very much yeah, yeah. to keep that social distancing. So what they did is they had shifts in the mosques, so they didn't have one big prayer service, but they had a couple in a series so that there were only a, a smaller number of people in the mosque for the prayer with keeping the distance to each other. And then they weren't able to just visit their relatives and hug and kiss and eat together. Mm -hmm. And I saw it on TV, they literally just were able to like, go to your friends and family's house, leave the food at the doorstep, just wave at each other and then you leave. So I think that's, it just takes a lot of effort to actually obey to those social distancing okay. measures, but that is what is needed. Um, and then I guess as much as possible, increase, uh, hospital capacities, so try to set up makeshift hospitals, try to have ventilators, but that's obviously gonna be a very costly, and especially now with the, the, the global medical supplies market being that crazy, it's probably just unaffordable to a lot of countries. That's the same with PPE. Even Germany was struggling to purchase PPE, so just masks and gowns and gloves for the healthcare staff. So I can only imagine how that's going to play out for countries with a lot, a lot smaller budget. Because even for Germany, it's something that happened that other governments would literally just buy the supplies off the runway from a, a wholesaler and just take it to their country by offering double the money for it. 
So there's a lot, there are a lot of factors that will make it very difficult for low and middle income countries to cope with it. But I think there's at least a couple of measures they can take that are implementable and are feasible for these settings. Um, and I guess just ask for help, because I think a lot of the, the high income countries have realized that it's going to be a global problem. And in order to uh, control it, it needs, it needs a global effort. So hopefully, right. like, like German medical centers who have spent a lot of money on testing can hopefully help, for example, with testing capacity. So it might even work to ship samples around the world and test them in, in a place mm -hmm. that has a lot of testing capacity, for example. Well, great. Thank you. Um, uh, yes, I think it is uh, different settings, like, you know, countries being uh, socioeconomically um, with, with, you know, some different challenges, like uh, Afghanistan is almost, you know, totally relying on the international community to support um, in terms of uh, fighting this COVID-19, not only fighting COVID-19, but in general. Um, the, but um, I think with the international support, if they, international communities and WHO and can provide, um, you know, more testings for people, as you mentioned, that is a key important part that is um, playing role in containing the coronavirus. Um, also, you mentioned about social distancing and other, um, you know, the people can take part too, which necessarily doesn't need any kind of like equipment. Um, but I think it is very important. I think I agree. I mean, I agree with you with in terms of um, the manpower. Uh, if people can start also volunteering and helping each other, um, you know, even raising awareness is really important because it is like a crisis time. Uh, it is a crisis, and in the crisis time, like you know, you you raise awareness, you take uh, you set goals, and then you take actions. I think for the developing world, such as Afghanistan. Um, where we don't have all the other um, tools, but it is it is very important to raise awareness, and especially this time that we are recording this um, um, this podcast, it uh, it's Eid time there in Afghanistan, as you mentioned also in you know Ramadan in Germany. Um, so people are trying to um, normally like they they go to each other's houses, relatives' houses, and they see and. Um, as you said, like, you know, they're hugging and kissing each other and having, you know, sharing fruits and everything. But that's that's something that people are not doing that right now. And I um, I would really encourage people not to do so for, at least for this year. Uh, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of the uh, coronavirus or um, find the, the um, medications and, um, and the vaccine so we can be uh, better off uh, the years to come, even if the coronavirus exists. So um, you talked about the challenges of the uh, Im the, the implications of the um, pretty much about the socioeconomic implications of of the uh, coronavirus in Germany. Um, I think. Um, do you do you want to add to something something to, in that regard? Yeah, so basically, even though the German government has a lot of money to spend because we had like a very prosperous economy over the last years and I mean, a lot of tax money coming in, mm -hmm. now that government has to spend a lot of money on both paying for those people who don't work full time right now, it's paying for additional hospital beds and all that. So it's both 
the, the, the amount of tax money that's going to flow in this year has decreased a lot and the spending has exploded over the last weeks. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it has put a huge strain on the government uh, in terms of their, just their budget. I think that's yeah. maybe the, the first implication that's really, really important to think of. So right now it's that debate, how much money can we spend right now to try to not prevent the economy from collapsing versus getting bankrupt. Um, I guess overall, it's just, as I said earlier, like a lot of the big car manufacturers literally had to halt production for weeks. So that is a lot of jobs associated with that. So people and companies didn't earn any money in that time period. So overall, those social distancing mechanisms have put a huge strain on the German economy. But I think it, yeah. that's the right way to do it. Because if, if hundreds and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people die on, of coronavirus, that puts even a bigger strain on the economy. Mm -hmm. um, but that also means that, like, for example, conspiracy theories and fake news have emerged quite a bit. So because, as I said earlier, the people don't necessarily see coronavirus that much right now because the number of cases that low, a lot of conspiracy theories have evolved and more and more people try to publicize those. So it's either people blame Bill Gates because he's a huge <laughs> advocate for global health. Everyone who works in global health knows that the work he's doing has been amazing. And he has actually invested, but not his own money, but the money from his foundation into German companies that are working on vaccine development. So the first conspiracy is that it's all Bill Gates, or people will say that it's all big pharma, or people will say that it's the government just making that up. Um, so these are all factors that come together. Um, yeah. But I think the, the, the impact on the social economy will be devastating, but it will be manageable because, for example, people have, not that many people have lost their jobs right now because of those government support systems and other social security schemes that are in place to prevent that from happening. But, but we'll just have to see for how long that's going to continue and then we'll be able to, to judge what the economy is going to look like next year. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Thank you. Yeah, it is hard when people don't see uh, things like, you know, this is an invisible enemy and most of most of, you know, the um, microorganisms, of course, it's hard to see it with with your naked eyes but you know as health professionals we believe that it is in there it's <laughs> it's there so people have to be cautious um uh, regardless of the source and how it erupted and started but it is uh, a threat to the world so people have to take it serious um you know keeping the social distancing as well as fighting and the COVID 19 across the world and learning from one another uh, we are almost to the end of this uh, podcast uh, for the sake of time. Uh, is there anything that I didn't cover and you wanted to mention or about your work, about yourself, about what you do or anything? I, mean, I think we covered literally everything that is there to cover. Personally, I think it's really interesting to see that people do care about surveillance systems and like predictive models a lot right now because I've done that work for quite a few years on malaria, but in like high income settings, no one really cares about the infectious diseases that much anymore. So now seeing that there is a push for like contact tracing apps on your phone and that they're revamping surveillance IT systems and trying to like build predictive models and all, all that kind of stuff. It's really interesting to see what can be done with health IT for such a such a problem and there is a big push to like set up a global pandemic warning system which actually people like bill gates or the whf advocated for years but never got funding for it and now i think we can see a lot of those developments will happen and i think if the next pandemic 
will make its way around it. I think I hope that we are much better prepared for it because we have those tools ready and handy and yeah. can actually act a lot quicker. Because as I said earlier, if we if Germany had realized that they should have locked down a little bit faster, they would have had an even lower number of cases and things might already look a lot different right now. So yeah. I think that's at least from my work perspective, that's quite interesting to see. Well, thank you so much again, Felix, uh, for your time in being on this podcast. Um, it really is helpful for, for us um, all um, across the world, especially um, the developing world, to learn from experiences of other countries. And dear listeners, thank you so much for listening. And um, follow up the uh, podcast with Dr. E and uh, learn more about um, what's going on in the world, especially in terms of uh, this pandemic, as well as the current situations in health and education. So thank you again very much. And have a great day. That was great. Thank you.